Good morning. It's a blessing to be here with you. My uh, wife is up at Roots Camp. I'm glad to have made it here with the kids, looking presentable. My uh, wife helped by uh, braiding their hair before she left. So this morning, all I had to do was simply unbraid it, and they could do that themselves. It really was what well, was exciting to uh, be here yes, yesterday morning as the uh, uh, Roots Ministry left to camp and seeing how many of them there were. Like, I don't know if, uh, and, and there, were, there were some pictures on Facebook. Our front porch was, was crowded with students, and, and it is exciting, it's exciting for us as a church. If you were to go into the back, you would see that there's, there's like twice as many waiting. So it is just an exciting time for our church body to see all of those, those students uh, uh, gone. But, I mean, in the best way. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter this, this morning, in 1 Peter 4. And as we work our way through 1 Peter, I am impressed by God's sovereignty in bringing us to this book. I know that we aren't going through as much suffering as we could as Christians. We're not suffering as much as Christians in other parts of the world are. We're not suffering as much as missionaries around the world are. But it's tough not to get a sense as we listen to the news, as we see our culture change, that we may be suffering more in the future. And as we think about those teenagers who are at the Roots Retreat now, it is easy to imagine how they will suffer for their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe it's in small ways as they turn down different activities that take place on an increasingly secular culture on Sundays because of their commitment to being with God's people. Maybe it's the suffering that they go through, the being mocked because they refuse to look at their friends' phones. Not just like they're afraid of phones, but that they're Nervous, what? Why are my friends working so hard to get me to see something that I don't want to see? And they're mocked for it. When they get a reputation for being holier than thou in their schools. Or in today's world, that they're seen as bigots because they they believe homosexuality is sin. Or they are seen as anti-women because they believe that God is the one who determines gender and gender roles or because they believe that God's word teaches that life begins at conception. Or they're mocked as being anti-science because they believe that scripture teaches that the earth was created in six literal days. It is in God's providence that we are now going through the book of 1 Peter. Because 1 Peter is a book about preparing people for suffering. And those of you who have followed Jesus Christ for long, you've gone through some of that suffering. But I think it is easy for us to imagine. We don't even have to imagine anymore. If we are going to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are going to go through more. And our kids will definitely. 1 Peter is Peter's 2,000-year-old encouragement to the suffering, sojourning saints of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. 
His encouragement, though, is different than what we might be tempted to give our teens. And it's not that Peter hasn't been encouraging. In 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 12, and I, I, I encourage you as we keep working through 1 Peter, go back and review the book. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12 is an incredibly encouraging book. As we work our way through it, you're going to see the riches of those first chapters more and, and why they needed this encouragement, how the book begins about this great salvation, this, this living hope that has been given to them. Or in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, those, those sweet verses about being this chosen race and royal priesthood and holy nation and people for God's own possession. Once not a people, but now are the people of God. He knew that they needed that encouragement, and, and we understand that. But he also knows that being a Christian in a culture that's opposed to Christianity is hard. But he doesn't start off by talking to them about dealing with suffering. He talks to them about their own personal holiness. About their need to fear God. And when he does talk about suffering, he really begins with urging them not to retaliate. To sanctify Christ as Lord, we saw in chapter 3, verse 15. And we saw in verse 1 of chapter 4 last time we were in 1 Peter, that Paul, Peter, calls on them to get ready to suffer. Now, that is the kind of thing we may not be telling our teens, our kids. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, get ready to suffer. As you launch into public high school, get ready to suffer. As you launch to college, get ready to suffer. But that's exactly what Peter says. To arm themselves in 1 Peter 4, verse 1. And I'm going to go ahead now and read 1 Peter 4, verse 1 through 6. We looked at verses 1 through 3 last time, and we'll look at 4 through 6 this time. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Perhaps this isn't the kind of encouragement we would give to a new convert or to one of our teens. It may not come across as sympathetic or, or hopeful. And yet, even as he begins verse 1, he doesn't begin, it's not all doom and gloom. Yes, he does say, arm yourselves with the same purpose. Be ready to suffer. Make it your intention to suffer. Not like you're going to go out intentionally find suffering but be ready for it. The last time we were in 1 Peter, we saw three reasons why they had to be ready to suffer. The first was in verse 1. The first reason to be resolved to suffer was because Christ has suffered in the flesh. And we looked at John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And that is the promise of the Lord Jesus. 
So he says, prepare yourselves to suffer because Jesus suffered. And if we become like the Lord Jesus Christ, we can expect to be treated like the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's also encouragement, too, as we think about Christ's suffering. His suffering was, was effective. His suffering brought us to God. There's encouragement in our suffering. It guaranteed that we will be made alive again in the Spirit, even as Christ was. We're encouraged that though he suffered, he is eternally victorious now over any who would persecute us. So he said, arm yourselves with this, with this preparation to suffer. Equip yourself with that. Because Christ suffered. And then the second reason was at the end of verse 1. Because suffering is sanctifying. He says, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That doesn't mean that you are perfected, that you never sin again. But that in your resolve, when you go into work that day saying, I might suffer for Jesus Christ, or, or I'm going to put my relationship on the line with, with my neighbors by sharing the gospel with them. It's a sanctifying effect on your life because you're, you have this purpose. You go to school with a, with a different aim for advancing the gospel. You go to work with a different purpose. You, you disciple your children with a different purpose. And you, as you do that, you're going to be like, well, why would I waste my day on the internet? Why would I watch a thing that I know I shouldn't? Why would I give in to lust? I'm suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm all in and making disciples. And that's what Peter's getting at there. He's seen the sanctifying effects even in his own life, from before he was willing to suffer for Christ to after. And he calls others to be holy. The third reason to arm ourselves with this intention to suffer, we saw in verses two and three. And we saw that suffering, this, this, this mindset, this preparation, unifies our resolve to do God's will. It is confirming of our, confer, of our conversion. 1 Peter 4, verses 2 through 3. says, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Our, our resolve to suffer guarantees that we're not going to waste our, our, our post-conversion life, our, our post-baptism life by going back to the things that we are now ashamed of. We, we, we spend the rest of our time now doing God's will for obedience. So you can see how in Peter's mindset here, this, this intention to suffer, this, this readiness, is really walk-defining. I'm not saying like it's a second step, it's a, a second blessing. If you do this one thing, your life will become so much holier. But he is, he is bringing out some pretty powerful motivation here. If you want to be holy, be all in for Jesus Christ. Be making disciples. Put relationships on the line for Jesus Christ in a winsome way, in a loving way, but in a soul-sacrificing way. Now, this, this command in verse 1, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, is the only command in this whole section of verses 1 through 6. The next command starts a new paragraph in verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment. So that's, that's the, next, the, the next command. This whole ver first six verses are under this one idea of arming yourselves, of, of being resolved to suffer. So we're going to have to see here 
Well, why does Peter go where he does in verses 4 through 6? And we're going to see that this preparation to suffer, this resolve, requires our mental stability, our preparedness. So we're going to see three essential mindsets in verses 4 through 6 that we need when we arm ourselves with this resolve to suffer. We're going to see three essential mindsets. And I think that you'll see Peter's flow of thought here because it's a little tough to attract. By the time you get to verse 6, it's, it's a little hard for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. Whoa, Peter, like how did we get here? Like what's going on there? And so we're going to see, though, that, that really Peter is responding here to those who are causing saints to, 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 to suffer. So this first essential mindset we need is to expect ridicule from the world. Expect ridicule from the world. We need to expect, we need to get ready, we need to prepare to be mocked. Chapter 4, verse 4, we see this. In all this... They are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. In all this, he's looking back to all those behaviors that marked your pre-conversion life. And we saw that in verse 3. It's this, it's this course, it's this way of living of, of, of sensuality and lust and drunkenness and crowsing and drinking parties and, and abominable idolatries. It's clear that when you are made right with the Lord Jesus Christ, your behavior changes, your conduct, your, your course of life is different from what it was. And Peter describes those who don't have Christ as being surprised, being astonished. They're shocked that you don't run with them. You don't, you don't join with them anymore. And that word, running with them, it, 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 it is that great scene as Jesus gets in his boat to, 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 to cross this sea of of Galilee, and all the people on the shore here that see where Jesus is going. And so they run to get there as quickly as possible. Like, we're going to beat them around the lake. And as they go, they're gathering people with them. It's, in one of the, it's like in one of those, in one of those, uh, uh, the, one of those commercials on television, and I can't remember what the product is for. But I remember seeing it, these, these uh, scenes of like skyscrapers in a city, and everyone is flooding out. And I think it's like a Black Friday sale, or maybe there's a deal on a cell phone, and everyone's just kind of joining in to the flood of people. And that, that, that's what Peter is saying. They're astonished because you don't run with them. You don't get into that flood of people. You used to be one of those who joined the frenzy. Is there a party? I'm there. And, and he said that you used to join, run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. That's a mouthful. The, 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 these, these, these excesses, it's a wide stream. It's a pouring out. And that's why ESV has the word flood. It's when you leave the water on in your bathtub. It's plugged, you're running a bath maybe, and you forget about it, and it runs over. That is the, the, the excesses of dissipation. And he says, you used to run like that. You used to run with them. You used to follow them like all the salmons at the same time jumping upstream, all the lemmings jumping off the cliff. 
But these excesses were of dissipation. Dissipation is the wasting of resources in the pursuit of self-indulgence. The wasting of resources in the pursuit of self-indulgence. The ESV Bible has, has the word de, 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 debauchery. It, it is indulging your pleasure to the point of harm. To pursue pleasure with reckless abandon. That is what these, these now believers, these, these now sanctified ones, these saints used to do. But the lost world around them is surprised that, that they don't just jump into their old lifestyle, that, that, that they don't waste their lives as well pursuing pleasure in godless ways. And so it says, they malign you. The lexicon describes that word as to speak in a, in a disrespectful way that demeans or, or, or denigrates. It brings low someone. And Here's some, some synonyms just from our dictionary. It's, it's to run a smear campaign against, to speak ill of, to run down someone, to misrepresent them, to abuse them with your speech. And that's what their friends, their friends, their old friends are doing with them. The word, the word malign really typifies what the saints of, uh, how the saints of Asia Minor suffered at that time. There's not evidence yet of widespread imprisonment or, or beatings or, or them being executed, although that could have happened to some of them. From, from what we see in the book is what the saints faced at this point, and, and, and that kind of persecution was coming later, but what the saints faced at this time was social. It was shame. It was being mocked. Maybe being called and, and criticized as being dis. dis disloyal because they wouldn't participate in, in, the, in the emperor worship. Perhaps they were suffering a, a loss of business as, as, as business went elsewhere. They were being, being, being ostracized and their failure to participate made them social outcast. At, at the beginning of the second cent century, the historian Tacitus described Christians as haters of humanity as haters of humanity. And it wasn't because they were proud. It wasn't because they weren't loving people. It's because that's what they reviewed because of what they weren't participating in. They were ridiculed because they changed, because they didn't jump into the same river, because they wouldn't abandon themselves to pleasure. And if you are going to arm yourselves with this expectation of suffering, you must expect ridicule from the world. We have to train our children that that is what they're going to, going to expect. That's what our teenagers are going to expect. That's what we should expect in college. Now, we know that, that, that culture changes. And really compared to the ancient Roman world, some of our culture can look pretty, pretty squeaky clean at times. Although as you read this, you're like, well, that sounds a lot like my college life. Or maybe that is what your, your family was like. You may not be, be maligned because of sins of partying or going to these religious festivals or because of your re re refusal to do those things. But you may be maligned because you won't wear your company-sponsored Pride Month wear. You may be ridiculed for what you won't watch for what you are 
convinced is immodest because you won't take advantage of the company card. You may be maligned for those kinds of things. You may be, you may be maligned for your commitment to biblical roles. Wives, because you're committed to being a worker at home. Husbands, you might be maligned because you won't sacrifice your family for the promotion at work. Because you are committed to making disciples of your children and of neighbors and inside the church. You may be maligned because you won't put your students, your, your, your child's chance at a scholarship before Sunday attendance. Or you might be blind because you care more about roots than, than about grades and getting the perfect ACT score or SAT or whatever scores we're getting now. You may be blind because the size of your television or the size of your yard or the age of your car or that you still have a flip cell phone. Oh, those are becoming cool again, I think. Because, not just because you're cheap, but because... You're directing your money towards gospel advancement. Now, all those things I talked about, most of them aren't right or wrong in themselves, although some are clearly taught in, in God's word. There's a lot of choices to make. But in the general course of your life, are you running after others in dissipation? Are you throwing yourself into the stream of what the world strives for? Of wanting more money, of more pleasure, of more experiences. We live in a world where we feel like we're depriving our kids if they don't have all of these experiences. What are we living for? We should be so different that we are maligned. We are ridiculed. We are slandered. Now, of course, God is sovereign over that. And the more I think about it, I see that we have avoided some of that for a time because of the influence of living in a, a still influenced by a Judeo-Christian culture. We are less different than we could be in some places. But at the most obvious, that, that, that Judeo-Christian culture is, is falling apart. And there's been a lot of facade to it for a long, long time. We can't guarantee that we're going to be ridiculed. But we should expect it. But we should expect it if we refuse to worship the gods of sex and, and, and security and status. Brothers and sisters, the world doesn't know the superiority of abiding in Jesus Christ. They don't know the refreshment of the gospel. They don't know the blessing of eternal life. They don't know the joy of obedience. That is what we have in Christ Jesus. We don't need to jump in that stream. Right? I don't know if it's a good time to quote an old DC talk song. We don't live and die for the power they seek. For those of us who grew up in Christian homes or, or just like throwback music. We can't guarantee we're going to be ridiculed but we need to prepare for it. We need to prepare new converts for this. We need to have that, and Jesus makes that so clear. That's part of the gospel call. You don't bear fruit if you don't die. So that's why Peter's saying this here. 
In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them to the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. You should be expecting this. So that's, that's a mindset we need to have. We need to expect reject, ridicule from the world, rejection from the world. We also need to wait for God to judge. Wait for God to judge. And that's where we go in verse 5. Peter continues, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God's people face rejection now. But the maligning that we face will only be temporary. The rejection that God's enemies face will be eternal. And Peter doesn't say this, rubbing his hands together and say, oh, they're going to get it. But it's true. We'll think more. Why does he say it here? This uh, language of giving, giving account, it's the language of, of the courtroom. And it's often used language in, in the New Testament. We see Jesus Use this in Matthew 12, verses 36 to 37. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. They will have to explain why they said what they said. And Jesus says, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words will be condemned. And Jesus is not talking about how we save ourselves, but that by our words there will be evidence whether we belong to Jesus Christ or whether we did not. Romans 14, verse 12, we see another. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. It's difficult to know here if Peter is, is specifically thinking of God the Father as the judge of the living and the dead or, or of Jesus Christ. Really, you can make a case for, for either one of those. See, Peter taught that God the Father is judge. We see in 1 Peter 1.17. You address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. The evidence of your salvation will be clear in your obedience. 1 Peter 2.23 2, talks about how Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. There it's talking about God the Father. It was similarly taught that God the Father is judged by Paul in Romans 2 verses 5 through 8. Because of your stubbornness, an unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Do those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and, and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambition and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, wrath and indignation. So we see there that God the Father is judge, and he, and he does judge on our works. Now, that is not about how we become saved. It's not about how we have our sins forgiven. We are only saved through faith in Christ alone, trusting him to take the punishment for our sins. But then when we stand before God as judge, he will look at us and see our sins cleansed. And then he will see the abundance of righteousness that Christ has produced in our lives not just Christ's own righteousness, but actual actions of righteousness because of our belief in Jesus Christ, because of that new life that God has given us, because of our union with Jesus Christ. But the scripture also talks a lot about Christ as judge. Jesus himself, Matthew 25, in several, in, 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 in several passages, but most clearly Matthew 25, 31 to, 
33, talks about the Son of Man coming in his glory and all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne. And it's that separation of the, of the goats and the sheep there. Paul, in Acts 17, verse 31, his speech on Mars Hill, ends his, his proclaiming of who the true God is, the unknown God, and he ends it this way. God has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The proof that Jesus Christ is the judge is his resurrection. But this same phrase in 2 Timothy 4, Paul describes Christ Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead. In Acts 10.42, Peter does the same. He says that they were called to solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and dead. So I think it's best that although we know in Scripture that the Bible talks about God judging, that when it talks about him being the judge of the living and the dead, that's probably Jesus Christ here. And Scripture gives a powerful picture of Jesus Christ returning to judge in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 9. In fact, it's talking about those returning to judge those who persecute Christians. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. This is how he comforts them. It is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And how powerful of a picture there of the Lord Jesus returning as judge, revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution. And that's what Peter's referring to here when he talks about giving account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. See, Jesus Christ is ready. He is prepared to make that separation between the sheep and the goats. He is prepared to reward the good and the faithful and to expel the wicked and lazy servants. The living and dead is an exhaustive phrase for all people. All people who've ever lived, whether they're alive on earth when Christ returns or whether they are among those billions who have already died. Jesus is prepared to return as judge, but are you prepared for him to return as judge? Hebrews 9.27 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Today could be your day. Are you ready to give an account? Are you clinging to Christ Jesus, to his death and resurrection, as your only hope? Are you clinging to him as, as the one who cleansed you from your sin? Are you ready to give him glory for the life of obedience he has accomplished in you? Are you eager to give an account? See, we shouldn't dread giving an account. 
We should be eager to give an account, knowing that Christ has accomplished in you the obedience of faith. And we don't say this proudly, with, with total humility. Christ has accomplished obedience in me. I'm not obeying perfectly, but I obey truly. I love him. I can't wait to be with him. I can't wait to be rewarded by him. Are you ready to give an account to Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead? If you are not, then fly to him. Psalm 46, he is a fortress, he is a refuge, and we need no greater fortress or refuge to hide from than from his judgment. Cling to him and be saved. Now we could ask ourselves, why does, why does Peter include this truth here? He's, he's speaking about how they're surprised about what you're doing. You shouldn't be, be surprised. This is part of what you should be preparing yourself for. But they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. See, and this mindset is essential because of the comfort it brings. The Lord has an answer to your persecutions. It is final and eternal. It is weighty. He will not let the suffering of any saint go unpunished. The final verdict will not be seen in this life unless the Lord returns. But the Lord will settle all offenses against his people. He is just. Peter wants them to be comforted by this. They will have to give account to the judge of the living and the dead. They're going to have to stand before the creator and account for why they live their lives in dissipation. And what account do we give? We give the account that Christ died for me. And I've lived in obedience since. See, it's humbling. We escape God's justice because of Christ Jesus alone. And it's so humbling that he transforms us even into those who, who are not, you know, snickering at the thought of our persecutors being punished. You know, we should not be watching democratic debates saying, oh, I can't wait till they get theirs. Our hearts should be breaking and, and mourning because we were slaves like them. And I'm sure Peter includes that in this. It should be humbling. Yes, we know justice is coming. But we're also those, as he's talked about, those who are zealous to see our persecutors reconciled to God and to those who glorify him on the day of visitation. This is why we pray for all men. We want them to become our king's worshipers, not just fodder for judgment. This, this, this mindset of this expectancy, this waiting for God to judge, it also reminds us how foolish it is to pursue the approval of men who will have to give an account to God. I mean, just think about that. We may be in their court now, right? And they are casting verdicts on all of our morals and our truth claims and our beliefs about eternity and our beliefs about creation. They're casting verdicts on us all the time. But what is their approval matter? What is, what is their judgment of us matter? They will be judged by the judge of the living and the dead. And of course, this doesn't mean that we should taunt them. 
We shouldn't say, oh, God's going to judge you. But we should warn them of that. But we think about Jesus in 1 Peter 2, 23, how he uttered no threats. He did not revile in return. Kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. But we need this mindset. We need this mindset. We need to be prepared to expect ridicule from the world. We need to wait for God to judge. Now, the transition into verse 6 is a little difficult to, 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 to follow, and it takes some meditating on. What happens here? For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. And what does this have to do with the command in verse 6 of preparing ourselves to suffer? I think what Peter's doing here, and we're trying to understand his flow of thought, He imagines the, the lost world responding to what he just said. He said, wait for judgment. Because God is coming to judge the living and the dead. And perhaps he's imagining the lost world responding here. If Jesus will judge with the living and the dead, well, where has that gotten you, Christians? You die just like we do. The difference is, is that we don't waste our lives. We enjoy our lives. We, we get the most out of Orange County living. We have our best lives now. So really, Christians, as you die, and, and it could be Christians who had been martyred, but, but there's no evidence of that in the book. It could just be those who have died since coming to faith in Christ. You dead Christians are the reasons why our mockery is valid. You've wasted your life. Or, as in, in, in 2 Peter 3, verses 4, verses 3 through 4, describes how those who don't have God mock, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fall asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You see, Jesus hasn't come back. You're dying, and you're just missing out on life. And, and I think that that's why Peter goes here next. It leads us to our third mindset. Don't doubt God's power to save. Don't doubt God's power to save. Because you can imagine this attack being leveled against them. And we know that, 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 that Paul, in the book of, of 1 Thessalonians, needed to make some of this clear for the early Christians. Well, what happened to those who died before Christ's return? We're all waiting for Christ's return, and it's been a while. He's not back yet. So, so what happens to those who've died? Like, do they get to participate in this? And so, 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 so maybe there's, there's some of that going on here. Well, Peter says, the purpose... Oh, yeah, I'll get to that in a just a minute. So what we're going to start with, though, is in, in the beginning of verse 6. For the gospel has, for this purpose, been preached even to those who are dead. And we're going to get to that purpose second. Because that's, that purpose is the second half of the verse. Let's just deal with that first thought. The gospel has been preached to even those who are dead. Now remember, he's writing to believers here. 
What is he talking about? This gospel has been preached even to those who are dead. Well, it's clear in context here that he's talking about those who are physically dead, not those who are spiritually dead. And we know that in verse 5 because he just contrasted the living and the dead. So he's talking about those whose bodies have died. He's not just saying that the gospel has been preached to the spiritually dead. But context also make clear that Peter's not talking about some kind of proclamation of the gospel to all the souls who have died before Christ, which wouldn't make sense in this context anyways. And really the context in verse 5 would argue against that. So what would it mean, what comfort would be there to say is that they're going to have to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead, but wait, there's going to be one final offer of the gospel after you die. So you can escape judgment even if you've wasted your whole life here disobeying God. Well, that wouldn't make any sense in the context of verse 5. So clearly, he's talking about those who have physically died. But he's not talking about those who physically died and who aren't saved. He's talking about those who believed the gospel before they died. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. And this is why, why, why the NIV Bible includes the word now. Those who are now dead. It's just making clear that you understand. The gospel was preached to saints who've already died. Now we're going to see next why he says this. Okay? For the gospel was preached to your peers, to the believers who have already died, for this purpose that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. These phrases here are challenging in the Greek. I think they're challenging in the New American Standard. They're challenging in the ESV. There's, they're even a little bit more challenging um, because our New American Standard's Bibles add in some words trying to uh, help us. It says, and I hope you have your Bibles open or your phone scrolled here, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. And that will there is in italics because it is added. It's not there. And really what you have is something kind of in a more clunky word-for-word -word way. On the one hand, they are judged according to men in flesh. What does that mean? On the other, they may live according to God in spirit. Well, what's clearest here? is that contrast between flesh and spirit. Because Paul, Peter's already been talking about that in 1 Peter 3.18. He described how Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so what's most clear here is that he's giving a contrast between our, our life in this body with our new, resurrected, waiting for eternity body. Okay, so, so our, our body, we're going to get when Christ returns. One is flesh and one is described as being spirit. One is temporal and changing and mortal. The other is eternal and unchanging and, 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 and immortal. Last time we looked at this, it was in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 53. I'm not going to go over all that now. Uh, but Paul encourages them in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 53, how they need this body appropriate to eternity in heaven. 
That, that, that we have to get rid of this body, which is, which is fallen, and he talks about it uh, being, being, being dishonorable and weak and natural, but that we're waiting for a spiritual body, that this is the body after the first man, Adam. We're waiting for one that is going to be heavenly, made after Christ. Verse 51, he says, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. We will all get this new in-spirit body. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on, on, on immortality. Christ lives now in the spirit and it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a body that's flesh and blood. He's just, it's different from our current body. It is an eternal body. It is a perfected body. It is an imperishable body. The believers right now have bodies that are passing away. We see this every day in the mirror. Our bodies are passing away, and we are waiting for our new resurrected body, which Peter describes as this, this in-the-spirit body. So Peter is making a contrast here between what we see right now in the flesh and what we will be in the spirit. So that explains the big concept. The gospel is preached to those who've died so that though they were in the flesh, one day they will be made alive in the spirit. The better is coming. The eternal is coming. So think about that when you go through your suffering. God has the power to save you. It doesn't matter if the lost world thinks that we are wasting our lives. Their evaluation doesn't matter. We have eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternity with God in heaven in these new, perfected, imperishable, unshameable bodies. It's a huge comfort for those of us who've gone through shame. There will be no dishonor of any kind for eternity in that new spirit body, which is still flesh and blood. But... There's more going on here in the verse. So that's the big idea. But he says, though they are judged or condemned as men. And it's not that, that it means according to men. See, these are two parallel phrases here. And, then, and there's two kinds of living. There's, 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 there's being judged in this flesh according to men or in men's presence, or among men, or by men. It's what the world thinks of us. It's what the world thinks happen to us when we die. It's their judgment about our death, that, that, that we die according to their thinking, but we live according to the will of God. And it, those are parallel phrases, according to man versus according to God. Or one commentator described it as, as, as among men, so that you could say, that though we are judged in the flesh among men, that we are judged among men in the flesh, we may live before God in the spirit. And that's that contrast. What men think of us now and what God will think of us for eternity. It's God's will that matters. It's what is according to God. Among men in their eyes, believers who have died in, in, in the flesh are, are condemned. They're, they're, they're as without hope as they are. But before God, in his eyes, we will live according to the Spirit. 
So as you are resolved to suffer, really, you've got to set your eyes on the finish line. And that finish line isn't even closing your eyes. It's not even just death, although at death we get to be with Christ, but we don't get our resurrected bodies yet. Our resurrected bodies don't happen. We don't understand a whole lot about what that, what, what, what that between death and our new eternal bodies is like. We know we're going to be with Christ. It's better by far. But, but the finish line is when we get our new imperishable bodies. When we please God forever for all eternity as creatures. And that's what we set our minds on as we resolve to suffer. Yes, we are being condemned in the flesh by all of those around us, right? Just get on Facebook or Instagram. What fools we are. How stupid are we to believe what the Bible says? You're wasting your lives. Just, just, just have freedom and pleasure. But we are those who live according to the will of God in spirit. And that's our encouragement. We are waiting. We don't doubt God's power to save, even as our brothers and sisters in Christ around us die. We don't look at them and say, oh, they wasted their lives. No. At least we hope not, right? Not if their lives are bearing evidence of Jesus Christ. We continue to trust ourselves to him who judges justly. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. Our hope is anchored in the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. With our very last breath, we will continue to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light because we don't doubt God's power to save us. We may be rejected by men, but we've been chosen by God in Christ Jesus. Jesus, and, 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 and here you see, you see some of just Peter's brilliance and how well-crafted this letter is. Peter was laying the foundation for this in 1 Peter 2. He describes in 1 Peter 2, verse 6, for this is contained in Scripture. The Old Testament is where I get this from, Peter says. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed or will not be put to shame. See, this has been going on for a long time. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What we go through here is what Jesus Christ went through. But those who believe in him will not be put to shame. So we have to look towards the future of Christ's return. This is discipleship. This is the discipleship we need to do in one another's life. One-on-one one -on -one discipleship. This is what needs to happen in our care groups. This is me, by God's grace, being used to disciple you, just as you are going to have to speak these things back to me. This is how we prepare ourselves to suffer. This is how we prepare our children to suffer for Jesus Christ. This is how we prepare new disciples of Jesus Christ to suffer. We have to encourage them. We have to call them. And even, as Peter says, he commands them. Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, that purpose that Christ had of suffering. So that purpose, this training, is we have to expect ridicule from the world. We have to expect ridicule from the world. Is ridicule from the world 
stopping you from making disciples? Does the world see a difference from you? Or do they see you practically just being a lemming, jumping off the cliff with them? We must expect ridicule from the world. We must wait for God to judge and trusting judgment to him, but we know it's coming. He is going to be glorified. The slander that we receive, it's really about Christ being slandered, and God will have none of that for eternity. We must trust in God's power to save. And praise the Lord, we have 2,000 years so far of saints trusting in God's power to save. Right? The true believers were, were a source of confusion to all those around them. As they looked at these people who breathed their last breath, saying they wasted their lives. But that's being judged in the flesh according to men. We are those who will live by God's power according to God's will in the spirit. John 6, verses 39 to 40 says, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And that is what Peter was encouraging these saints with, and that is how we prepare ourselves to suffer. Let's pray. Father, we want to be humble listeners to your word. Father, we know that there's many uh, blessings of, of living in a culture where there are still many morals. Um, we know that we have not suffered as much here in a country with many freedoms as our brothers and sisters around the world have suffered. It's not been as obvious. It's been often more hidden. And even as I say that, I know some of us here have, have gone through a tremendous suffering from families for their uh, commitment to you. Lord, we entrust that to you, and we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful to obey what we are called to here. We want to be faithful to arm ourselves with a preparation for suffering. And Lord, we pray that you would use this arming ourselves, as we saw last time, as a sanctifying effect, that we would live the rest of our lives for your will, and not for our own pleasure, not for those things that we're now ashamed of, Lord, but that we would also, as we prepare ourselves to, to, to suffer, not be surprised when we suffer ridicule, Lord, but that we would be expecting because we don't, we don't do what, we don't love what they love. Lord, we, our hearts, our affections have been changed by you. Help us to love different things, Lord. Help us to love you. Help us to love your glory. Help us to love your glory as proclaimed in the gospel. Help us to love your people, to be intensely devoted to one another, Lord. Help us to love your glory in their faces. They become more like your son. And help us to love your glory in the face of your son. Father, we, we, we pray that we would wait on you. Lord, that is a sobering reality. It's to bring comfort to us when we're persecuted. But also, Lord, we know that, that the clock is ticking. And there may be there, those here this morning who if they open their eyes after death, there's no hope left, Lord. I pray that they would turn to you this morning. 
And your word says that Jesus is ready. It's this incredible mystery that in his humanity, he doesn't know the day and hour. He's just waiting for the order. But I pray for those who don't know you, that you would dispel the facade, that, 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 that lie that they've succumbed to. And they would realize that they are not ready to stand before your son as judge. They would turn to him for salvation. And Lord, we do look forward to what you are going to do. We trust ourselves completely and totally to you, that Christ's blood is sufficient for us. We look forward to this new life in spirit, this eternity of, of loving you and knowing you. And even, Lord, we can't even imagine what it's going to be like to love you with, with, with a thoroughly refinished, refurnished mind, Lord. Oh, what capacity we'll have for delight that we don't even now, Lord. How foolish we are, we confess, uh, to waste it on the passing things here, Lord. Oh, please, prepare us to suffer. Help us to prepare others. Help us to be ready for whatever you have for us, whether here, whether you send us overseas, whether it's in the years to come. In Jesus' name, amen.